verse 15 through 24. As I mentioned, our final sermon in Isaiah after two-year study. Um, and we'll, over the next couple of weeks, kind of prepare for Resurrection Sunday. And the plan at this point after uh, Resurrection Weekend is to begin a new study in Paul's uh, letter to Timothy, the first First Timothy. So that will begin, Lord willing, after after. Uh, Easter. Well, as you know, the war in Ukraine continues. Uh, Vladimir Putin was, um, as I understand it, unprovoked and yet attacked the sovereign nation of Ukraine. Uh, cities have been and are being bombed. Uh, homes destroyed. Hospitals are destroyed. Soldiers are killed. Civilians are killed men and or women and children are being killed and abducted uh, millions of refugees millions of people are refugees and, and displaced from their homes uh, there there is in fact much evil being done in Ukraine i find it interesting that on numerous occasions though people being interviewed regarding this war have stated something like this, I can't believe that this is happening in the 21st century. When people make those kinds of statements, I would argue they are revealing that they really don't understand the nature of sinful man. They, they don't know God. Their hope has been in an idol. Brian By of Forbes magazine has said this, In the industrial age, in the information age, there was widespread optimism that technology would eventually solve all of our problems, poverty, disease, violence, and others. But in the last years, it's been slowly dawning on us that more technology by itself cannot be the solution. And in fact, the systems we currently have in place, while they solve some problems, create other problems that may be equally severe, end of quote. So more information and better technology will not save sinful man from their wicked ways. Now, thankfully, the message of Isaiah points to the solution, because Isaiah points to the God who saves. Isaiah has taught us that God is holy, holy, holy. He is a one-of-a-kind God. There is none like Him. He alone is righteous and just in all that He is and does. And like Isaiah in chapter 6, we would all be undone by our sin in God's holy presence. But sinful man has hope because God is passionate about, about his glory. And he saves sinful man for his namesake. This is why God has provided his suffering servant to take the penalty for our sin upon himself. Jesus bled and died in our place as our substitute to atone for our sin. 
But more than that, the Lord's perfect servant is also at work in the lives of God's redeemed people to teach them and transform them and to keep them for His glory. God promises those He redeems that they will, in fact, dwell in His presence on the new heavens and the new earth forever in His presence. And there will be full of happiness, full of life, full of blessings, and full of peace. Proud, self-sufficient man doesn't have that hope because of more and, and better technology. We have that hope because of the God who saves. One of my favorite verses in Isaiah is found in chapter 66, verse 2, the second half of verse 2, which says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The, the Lord's message given through Isaiah is, as we learned last week, pregnant with hope. God is at work now doing great things for His people, but the best is in fact yet to come. For the person who is trusting the God who saves, we have every good reason to be filled with anticipation and expectation of what He will yet do for His people. But for the one who is proud, the one who is self-sufficient, the one who is bent on doing life their own way, not God's way, Isaiah's message is also very clear. Judgment will come. God will show His indignation against His enemies. All the way through Isaiah, we've seen both the promise of salvation and judgment. And as we come to our sermon text for today... Uh, God gives yet another warning. Uh, that warning is a judgment of fire is coming on many. And we know that no one will ever be able to say, I, I didn't know. Verse 15 begins, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by His sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. It, it is true that even now, God's wrath is being revealed in the world against those who suppress the truth by their own unrighteousness and wickedness. Romans 1 teaches us that the one that, that one of the ways in which God re is revealing His wrath today, is, wrath today is by giving people what they want. When, when sinful man rejects the truth of God for a lie and begins to worship their own man-made idols rather than the Creator, they get what they desire. And it is the passions of an impure heart that will be the very judgment God gives to those who reject the truth about God that has been clearly revealed to all people. Romans 1 makes it plain that sinful man is without excuse before God. 
Now, while the God-given consequences of sin are terrible today, like Isaiah says, there's no rest for the wicked. There, There is coming a day when God's judgment God's judgment will be final, and it will be severe. Uh, Just, but severe. Isaiah describes God's judgment when he describes God coming in fire with his chariots of war like the whirlwind, something that nothing can stop. And his anger will be filled with fury and flames of fire. And, And I would argue that this is a reference to the final judgment as we learned last week in our adult Sunday school class. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6-9 through says this, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That day of God's judgment is coming. All people on the face of the earth know that there is a God to whom they must give an account. I can remember well my sophomore year in college when uh, I had this fear of dying. My fear of dying was very real. Uh, The Holy Spirit was really convicting me big time. And I, I knew that I wasn't right with God and I knew that if I died, I would spend eternity in hell forever. I knew that, but I, I ran from that truth. I ran hard from that truth. I ran from God because I wanted to fill my life with what Daryl wanted, not what God wanted. Now, thankfully, <laughs> I'm here today because God pursued me and God saved me. And to God be the glory for that. That's why I stand before you this morning. The truth that I want you to see this morning from this passage is this, that God gives sinful man opportunity after opportunity to repent of their sin. Certainly, uh, the way in which the Lord dealt with Israel in their stubborn sin demonstrates that. We've seen that throughout Isaiah. I mean, even after 70 years in exile, they were unwilling to repent. But the Lord was patient, leading them up to that exile, gave them opportunities to repent, took them into exile for 70 years, giving them opportunities to repent. But even after those 70 years, Isaiah tells us, their hearts never changed. God again and again warned them of coming judgment if they didn't repent. God gave them every opportunity Today, God also gives sinful man lots of opportunities to repent. Um, Gathering for funerals is an opportunity for people to think about God and what happens when we die. Um, Sadly, more and more today, people just don't have funerals. But I would argue that the death of a loved one still speaks into the lives of people 
today. Um, there, there are a lot of things that you could say about COVID-19. But maybe most importantly, COVID-19 was a God-given opportunity to think carefully about the frailty of life and the need to repent of sin before it was too late. I've seen God work that way. Tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes also speak loud and clear to people that they need a right relationship with their Creator more than they need life itself. People in Ukraine right now are thinking about eternal things, I would argue, more than ever. In Luke 13, Jesus was questioned about Pilate unjustly killing numerous people from Galilee. And Jesus asked if those Galileans were worse sinners than others. And then in response to his own question, Jesus said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus asked another question. He said, uh, he asked if the 18 people in Siloam who died when a tower fell on them were worse offenders than those who live in Jerusalem. And Jesus answered his own question again by saying, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So notice how Jesus teaches that when people die, and particularly when, we are, when people are impacted by tragic deaths, all people are given an opportunity to see their own need to be restored to a right relationship with God through repentance and faith. So all people everywhere on the face of the earth know that they must give an account to their Creator. God makes that plain to all people through what He has created and through the proclamation of the Gospel. But the problem is that sinful man rejects what God reveals instead of, and instead creates all sorts of man-made solutions for their guilty conscience. And the problem is that man-made solutions to problems like that never work. Idols never work. Isaiah teaches us that idols are pure folly. And Isaiah teaches that because God is passionate for His glory. The worship of false gods will in fact come to an end. Listen to verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. So what is described here are various cultic practices associated with false gods and idols. The temptation then and the temptation now is to worship a god of our own making or to be influenced by those around us who worship a, a god of their own making. Uh, all of this, all of this is offensive to God. God's redeemed, God redeemed Israel to be their god, for them to be his people, and they, they were to have no other gods before them. They were not to bow down to any man-made idols. And if they did, it would stir up God's jealousy 
for His own glory and for His own name and for the affection of their hearts. We, we learn in the first part of chapter 66 in Isaiah how I, God's very concerned with worship matters, right worship. Um, Jesus also taught us in John 4 that the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth. In, in this age, God's people are learning to respond to God in ways in which He teaches us to respond. We're learning to worship with our whole being wherever we are and in step with His revealed truth. Your, your worship matters to God today. But we also know that in the age to come, all false, offensive worship will come to an end. All people will worship in spirit and in truth fully. Uh, there won't be idols in the new heavens and the new earth. There won't be false gods. There will be no worship wars. There will be no lukewarm responses to the glory of God. No one will go through the motions of living the Christian life while their hearts are far from God. There will never be a worship song written that's filled with horrible theology. We, we won't be bored with worship. We will always respond to God in the ways in which He teaches us to respond. And we'll, we'll do that with our whole being. We should long for that day to come. And as we do, I think it will purify our worship even now. As we turn to verses 18 through 21, we learn that one of the things, we, we learn of one of the things that God promises this. He says, all will see God's glory. God will save a people from all nations and tongues. Now, these verses in 18 through 21 are a bit difficult to understand, partly because verse 18 says in the ESV and most English translations, for I know their works and their thoughts. The, the word know is not in the Hebrew text. Uh, most English translations insert know as they do because of the context. Um, so I would argue that meeting... That, that meaning of that first part of that verse is not clear, but I think what is clear is this. The second half of verse 18 says, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Um, and I think this statement clearly fits the work Christ came to do. Christ came so disciples would be made from all nations and languages. Uh, verse 18 ends by saying, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. When, when you see those two thoughts together, they shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, I think this too fits best the, the work Jesus came to do. One, to reveal the Father's glory, and two, we're told in Isaiah 7.14 that the sign of the Lord would that the sign that the Lord would give is that a son would be born to a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know that Jesus came and fulfilled that promise. So Jesus the Christ would in fact come from the Jews. And verse 19 continues by saying, And from them 
I will send survivors or the, the remnant of Jewish believers who survived the judgments of God. I, I will send survivors to the nations. And certainly we see the apostles fulfilling this promise and more of the faithful remnant, not, remnant, not just the apostles, but others. As you work through the book of Acts, you, you see that uh, taking you see that taking place. These survivors or this remnant of faithful Jews would be sent to Tarshish and Pool and Lud to draw the bow to Tubal and Javan to the coastlands far away that have not heard my name or seen my glory. So I, I think the purpose of naming these cities and nations is to indicate that the message of Jesus would be sent to remote places of the earth. But notice messengers would be sent to those who have not heard my fame or seen my glory. Uh, do you remember the Apostle Paul in particular was determined to take the gospel to people who had not yet heard? Um, that was kind of the focus of his mission. Uh, the, the end of verse 19 says of them, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all of your brothers from all of the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries or camels uh, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So, God will save a people from among all of the nations. And there would be many who would come in various means. Many would come from the nations or from among the Gentiles. They will come to the place where God dwells with His people and together they will worship in ways that are acceptable to God. Paul speaks of his ministry to the Gentiles in this way in Romans 15-16, and I quote, he talks about to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offerings of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Later in that very same passage, Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, in case we get lost in all of that, I want you to realize that you and I are here today in Merton, Wisconsin, enjoying life in Jesus Christ because the promises of verses 18 through 21 of Isaiah 66 have been and are being fulfilled. Uh, God's glory is being revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is saving a people for His glory from all nations and languages. And that's why we are here today. Praise God for that. And that's why you and I, too, are concerned for our unsaved neighbors and our co-workers and our family members. That's why 
we are concerned for people whose languages we don't yet speak. Uh, we want to be working where God is working, and that is among a people who have not yet heard of God's glory revealed in the Gospel. God is working among people who have not yet heard of His fame. And so we want to go to those people with the Gospel. And that includes people next to you, that live next to you, work next to you. And that also includes people who live in remote portions of the Amazon jungle. One small but very significant step for, is for you to prayerfully invite unchurched individuals or families to our service on Easter. Uh, here coming up in a couple of weeks. Elaine has put together a really nice flyer. It's on the round table. Where's Elaine? She's in the nursery. All right, so she put together this flyer. It has information on there about Good Friday service and resurrection uh, morning service, and they're on the round table in the back. And I would encourage you to say, God, would you, would you help me to have eyes to see those that I bump shoulders with, neighbors, co-workers, family members who don't yet know you, and invite them to come. That's one simple, small thing to do, a personal invitation. I care about you. We're, we're going to have a wonderful time together as a church family on Good Friday, Easter morning. Would, would you come and be my guest? I'd love to have you with me. Um, I, I encourage you to prayerfully think about those people. We, we want to be where God is working. And God is working, revealing His glory and His fame and His name to those who have not yet heard or seen. So, so pray about that. Now, there, there were many, many times in Israel's history where their future, from just a human point of view, was really questioned. Would, would they survive? Uh, would, would God be able to deliver on His promises given to Abraham and to David and through the prophets? There was lots of questions. Because man is weak. And when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament offers a resounding yes to those questions. Jesus came fulfilling the promises to Abraham and to David. Matthew 1.1, very first verse in the New Testament, affirms the fact that Jesus came to be a fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham and to David. And in fact, the apostles later tell us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of the promises of the Old Testament find fulfillment in Jesus. And then, through Jesus, a people are now being saved from all nations and languages. So as we come to the close of Isaiah, as we come to the close of this monumental message given through Isaiah, it's vital for us to see and understand that God always wins. For all eternity, God's people will worship Him on the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, verse 22-23 say, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. 
from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. So the, the work that God has begun here on this earth to save a people for His glory, something He has accomplished through His perfect servant and His suffering servant and the conquering King, that work will remain forever on the new heavens and the new earth. We will forever be in the presence of the Lord, worshiping and enjoying Him. All of the enemies of God will be separated from God forever, and those redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus will be with the Lord forever. Now, I would, I would love to end Isaiah's prophecy on that note. Uh, a note that focuses on being with Jesus forever on the new heavens and the earth, new earth. It's a, it's a great note. It, we would be blessed forever in God's presence. I'd love to end right there. But that is not how Isaiah ends. Instead, the final verse of Isaiah says this, verse 20, 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now, at first, this seems like an odd way to end this great prophecy. Um, yet I would argue it is, in fact, very fitting, because it, too, communicates a victorious note that God always wins. At times in our lives, it seems like the enemies of God are gaining the upper hand, but the truth is that God's enemies are given many opportunities to repent, but if they don't, they will in the end face God's just punishment forever. Their worm shall not die, and their fire will not be quenched. Because God always wins. And God's redeemed people will worship and enjoy Him forever. So it, it is certainly true that the entire message of Isaiah has included the promise of both judgment and salvation. Both of those things are promised throughout this letter. And so as we think about how to respond to the message of Isaiah, I think what Isaiah says to you and I today is to trust the God who saves. That means that we put our hope in God's righteousness and passion for His own glory to save a people through the suffering servant who suffered in our place. He, he took the blame for our sin and he conquered sin and death so that through repentance and faith, through trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone, will be forgiven, will be reconciled to our Father in heaven, will be counted righteous, and will have the hope of enjoying God on the new heavens and the new earth forever. And in this lifetime, he gives us the Spirit. And he's at work in us to teach us and transform us and to keep us. Isaiah says to you, trust, trust the God who saves. 
Um, and that, that means we should, we should say, God, help me also to see, give me eyes to see where I'm, I'm tempted to trust in an idol. I'm tempted to turn to things that I want to bring comfort to me, um, but those idols will always disappoint. Only our faithful God who redeems will, will satisfy. He will, he will never let us down. So Isaiah would say to you, and I would say to you, trust the God who saves. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful that you know our hearts. You know everything about us. And we, we are naked before you. And when we think about your holiness, we, like Isaiah, have had those moments where we too cry out that we are undone before you because of our sin. And yet, Lord, there is hope for us because in your mercy and in your love, you provided your suffering servant to suffer in our place, to redeem us, and to set us free from the curse of sin and to restore us to a right relationship with you. And that's a wonderful promise that we can have for this life and the life to come, the one who trusts in you. And so, Father... As we conclude this massive study in Isaiah, as we consider his message, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would help young and old alike see the glory of Jesus that you have provided and help us to run to him, help us to see in him the very one that we desperately need more than any other, to understand the work that he did in his death, burial, and resurrection, and to trust him, not, not ourselves, not our own righteousness, not our own good efforts, but to trust Jesus, to trust you, the God who saves. And in that, Father, I pray that your name would be honored in our lives and in this church, and I do pray that you would use us as individuals and as a church to cause people around us to hear of you and your glory, to see your glory and to hear of your fame. And we pray, Father, that even as we anticipate uh, Resurrection Weekend coming up, help us to be instruments in your hands to give personal invites to people to come and to hear the good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected. And so, Father, we pray that you would work. You promise that you are working. Help us to be where you are working, even this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.